listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Okay, those first six verses, somebody help me out. This is going to be very dialogical, all right? So I need your, need your help with this. Uh, no right or wrong answers, except some of them may be wrong, okay? So I'm just kidding. I'm not going for anything here. I don't have an agenda um, in this sermon at all. But what in those first six verses, what word or phrase stood out to you there? Known. Acquainted with all my ways, yeah. Search out my path. Verse four, just the whole verse. Yeah. I got a few head nods on that one. Yeah. Anybody else? You hem me in. Such knowledge is too wonderful. I cannot attain it. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, that's good. You don't have to share, by the way. Nobody has to, nobody's going to force you. Um, I would be interested, Trey, since you were just up here on stage, and since we have this planned out, right? Um, why, is, why is verse four significant? And so maybe take what you highlighted or underlined there, whether you said it or not out loud, but we'll just, yeah, so why is verse four significant to you? He already knew it. He knew I was going to call on you, even though you didn't. Crazy, right? So as we, yeah, he, so Trey was talking about just the ultimate knowledge, I think is the phrase that you started out with, is the ultimate knowledge that God has of everything that we're doing. So let's jump in with these verses. Uh, the first, if you notice in verse number one right there, he uses this word searched. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. That word search is used as a mining term. And so they would, you don't just go, if, if they found gold, if you found gold somewhere, you don't just go and, hey, I found 10 pounds of gold in the ground. Okay, I think I'm done for the day. No, if you go, if you go find that, you're going to keep searching. And so it's this idea of, of getting to know every single part of that mine, looking for even the smallest speck of gold that you can find. And you keep looking, you know every single crack and crevice of that in the same way that God knows every single part of us. And he doesn't just know us informationally, thankfully, he knows us intimately. So this word known is not just he has the knowledge of us. He doesn't just see us uh, on a a sheet of paper with all of our uh, pros and cons, all of our personality traits, but he knows us intimately. He has a relationship with us. I'm going to use three big theological words this morning. You may be familiar with these, but this is what we call omniscience. Everybody say omniscience. Good job. So you see the word there is broken up into a, a, a prefix and a, a suffix, I guess, or the, the main part of the word, the root. But you see the prefix there, omni. The word omni means all, all-encompassing, worldwide. We, we have that word there. The second part of that word is science. So Knowledge. So when we say God is omniscient, what we're saying is that God knows all things. The the takeaway from that is that he cannot learn anything. Isn't that wild? God cannot learn anything. There is no new information, past, present, future. There is no new information to God. Zero. Your actions, your words, your thoughts, your desires, your heart, nothing. Years ago, I had uh, someone ask me this, or I heard this, this phrase, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Nothing surprises him. He has searched us. He knows all things. He knows 
for many this morning, being Father's Day, he knows your hurts. He knows your disappointments. He knows, Father, your failure. He knows, son or daughter, how you have been damaged, how you have been loved, how you uh, should have been loved better, better. He knows all of those things about you. There is no secret. He knows you perfectly. If you look at verse number two, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Essentially, verse one kind of sets up, God knows all things. Verse two, he knows when I'm sitting down and when I'm walking. Pretty simple. You discern my thoughts from afar. Notice, if, if I want to know someone's thoughts, that means I have to be inside their head inside their brain. There is quite the intimacy there. But notice how God knows your thoughts. He knows your thoughts from afar. So he's both right there with you intimately and he's transcendent above all of creation. Both of those things simultaneously at the exact same time. Verse three, you search out my path so you know where I'm going, you know what's gonna happen in front of me and you know when I'm resting, when I'm lying down and you are acquainted with all my ways, everything in between. Verse five, you hem me in all together. So here, God knows everything about you. There are a lot of things about me that you don't know about, and I'm not gonna tell you. There are things about you that I don't know about, and I don't want you to tell me, but you don't even, you cannot, not that you, not that God's going to find out. You cannot keep those things from God. He already knows those things. There is no secret that you can hold from him. Think for a moment. How does that, how does that strike you this morning? You can give me the answer. How does that strike you this morning that there is nothing that you can hide from God? Anybody? Scary? Yeah, what else? Humbling? Yeah. Freeing. Shame. Genesis 3. Secure. We kind of have the, the best of both worlds, right? Or the best of this world, the worst of this one. We have freeing, and it's great, and it's good, and it's humbling. Wow, thank you, God, for knowing. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is scary. Man, he, he knows my worst. There is a lot of shame wrapped up in that. He knows all of those things. The good, the bad, the ugly. And notice what he does, verse number five. It says, you hem me in before and behind. In other words, that, that word, that phrase, you hem me in, literally means encircled. So I think about uh, when I took... Kingston, my eight-year-old, he's back there in kids' ministry today. Uh, when I tuck Kingston in at night, almost every single night, and he's got like 18 blankets I've got to put on him, and it's, got to, it's a whole process, and uh, both my kids, different processes, but just the same way. And Axel's got to go fix his door and his blinds, and he wants to be tucked in a certain way. But Kingston, he always lays there just like this. And he says, can you tuck me in? Can you wrap me up like a burrito? I'm like, sure thing, buddy. So I make sure to take his weighted blanket and tuck it in on the sides and then a sheet and then this other thing and then what's it called, a duvet or duvet or this other blanket. You know, it's just like, so I tuck him in and he's there just like this. He's all tucked in. The dude can barely move and he's just like, ah. I feel, now in the morning when I go, you know, when he wakes up, his head's at the other end of the bed, you know, so the burrito was completely unraveled. But that's what he's talking about. That's the picture. Man, you hem me in. You know everything about me. You encircle me. And then verse six, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. In other words, that, that phrase too wonderful, actually it means it's a little scary. My mind cannot comprehend it. It is unattainable for my human brain to wrap itself around. It, it is too wonderful. Man, I can acknowledge that you know all things, but I can't really, I don't really understand that. It's too amazing. It's almost otherworldly. So we consider that it's too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. What comes with that is both comfort. Man, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm hemmed in. I am wrapped up like a burrito in God. He knows everything. It brings both a great deal of comfort, but often it feels a lot more like a threat. Because man, if God knows this about me, 
Oh, shoot. Oh, man. I hope he didn't see that. Too bad. I hope he doesn't know what I think about that person. I hope he doesn't know my desire for that. No, he does. Even before you think it, even before you feel it, even before you do it, before you say it. And what do we do when we're over here on this side full of shame, when we're scared? We want to cover that up. Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3, 7 says this. Then the eyes of them were opened. And this will be up on the screen. Genesis 3, 7 says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They were in their shame. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They wanted to cover themselves up. But notice this, Philippians chapter three, verses eight and nine. They say, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Notice what he does. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him and be found in him, no longer found in a loincloth, no longer found in fig leaves, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, because we can't have that righteousness. We've already given that up. We have a sinful nature, but one that comes from the law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So in Christ, we are no longer clothed in our trying to cover up our shame in our fig leaves and our loincloths running to hide. But in Christ, we are covered in his righteousness. All of who we are, the good, the bad, what we think is good, what we hope people don't understand about us being the really bad, all of us is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There are seven things I want us to see this morning. Here's the first one, is that in Christ, we can be fully known and fully loved. I was listening to a Tim Keller uh, sermon this past week, and he actually used this phrase, being fully known and fully loved is in essence the good news of the gospel. Now, I think in gospel explanation and proclamation to others, we develop this idea out, but this is at the heart of the gospel. On the cross, Jesus Christ was fully known. He was exposed in all of his shame. He had one possession in this world, and that was his garment. And as he was on the cross, it was, it was being auctioned off. They were, they were playing, they were rolling dice to see who took his garbage. He had nothing else. He is fully exposed. And the father looked on him. It pleased the father to turn his back and to crush Jesus Christ. But we know that Jesus Christ was fully loved. But the picture that's on the cross is he is taking our sin, our shame, our brokenness, our rejection, our rebellion on himself so that we can be fully known. So as he's, as he's exposed on the cross, what he is exposing is not his own sinfulness. He's exposing ours. He's saying, this is how bad you are, that I had to be beaten, that I had to have my beard pulled from my face, that I have a crown of thorns on my head, that I had to be mocked and ridiculed and spat upon after living a perfect life. And now I have to have nails driven into my hands and into my feet. Because of our sin, the father turns his back on his son. We are fully known on the cross. And simultaneously, the reason that Jesus did that is so that we could be fully loved. Because on the cross, it's the greatest expression of Christ's glory and his love for us, his people. Without the cross, you've got to pick if someone were to say, hey, Michael, I, uh, I fully love you, I would say, thank you. That's only because you don't fully know me. And that's the same with all of us. If you were to say, yeah, but okay, let me, let me see if I can fully know you. If you knew everything that happened in here, every single part of this last week, you'd be like, I, I can't fully love you. It'd be really difficult, okay? Let's just, you're like, no, no, I really could. Maybe, probably not. I couldn't fully love you if I fully knew you. That without grace, without sacrifice, without forgiveness, that's where we're stuck. We have to choose one or the other. Because of the cross, now we can, be, we can have both for each other. But ultimately, we can have both for each other because we have that from a good father. We can be fully known and fully loved in Christ. All right, so now we get to the second section of verses here. We'll hopefully go a little more quickly through these. 
So let's take out, uh, if you have your sheet there, we're going to look at verses 7 through 12. And we'll have a little music play in the background. Spend about uh, two minutes looking at those verses, seeing what stands out to you in verses 7 through 12. And then we'll jump back in uh, in just a minute. Let's read these verses together out loud. Sorry, I almost forgot. Let's read these verses together out loud. These will be on the screen. Here we go. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as a light with you. All right, see what stands out, uh, see what you may have questions about, uh, and then we'll jump back into those six verses. Okay, so from those six verses, what stood out to you from those? What was significant? What word or phrase was significant from those, from those verses? Yeah, darkness and light. Say it again. Omnipotent, yeah, yeah. You are there. Everywhere. Darkness is not dark to you. Yeah, lead me and hold me. Clyde, why are those significant to you? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Clyde was saying, yeah, the lead me peace is into the future, uh, and the hold me is a comfort peace, yeah. Anybody else? Did you? Even there. Yeah. Yeah, when we look at these verses, so we'll start in verse number seven, and verse seven is kind of a setup again for the next five verses. But in verse number seven, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Here he's setting up the second kind of big theological word. If you want to write these down, if you want to sound, you know, smart in front of your friends, I guess, I don't know. But the word is this omnipresence. Omnipresence, let's say omnipresence together. Omnipresence, that's right. So again, we have this prefix for presence, um, meaning everywhere, all-encompassing, omnipresence. So by definition, God is everywhere. Now that doesn't mean God is everything, okay? He's not the trees, he's not 
the rock. So we're not going to begin worshiping these things, but he is everywhere. Here's the takeaway from that is that you may feel lonely, but you're never alone. You can read report after report after report. I get these in my email every single week uh, from secular organizations, from uh, different studies that have been done either by colleges or by Christian leaders in the church, whoever it is. People are lonely. We struggle with it so much. We don't want to be fully known, but we know God is everywhere. So even though you may feel lonely, you are never alone. Notice in verse number eight, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. So again, we have this, this comparison and contrast. To us, it's a contrast, these two different extremes. To the author, David is just like, yeah, both of those things are equal in God's sight. He's there. So first, if I ascend to heaven, so where you, the dwelling place of God, heaven, obviously God is there. But then he says, if I go down to make my bed in Sheol, so this is where they believe that um, the, the, it's the shadow, shadowy realm where the dead would go. And so some people may equate this to hell, that kind of thing. He says, even in Sheol, so whatever that looks like uh, in this context, you are there. Even to the uttermost darkness, the extreme, you are there. In the depth and in death, you are with me. Verse number nine, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you are. So he says here in the morning, uh, where does the sun rise in the morning? In the east. Some of y'all are like, is this a trick question? Some of y'all are like me. You're like, I'm directionally challenged, okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty, that's why I asked y'all. I'm like, I don't know. So, uh, I know it comes up every day. But he says here, the sun rises, even where it rises in the east. So put yourself in, in ancient Israel or modern day Israel. The sun rises in the east. So he says when it rises and then even in the sea. So where does the sun set? If you're in Israel, it sets over the Mediterranean Sea. So he's saying from sunup to sundown, from dawn to dusk, you are there with me everywhere at all times, day in, day out. If I'm living, if I'm dead, you are right there omnipresent with me. And verse 10, so if I take the wings of the morning, if I go to the sea, verse 10, even there, wherever I am, day or night, you are holding my hand. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I will protect you. I will be with you. You have my presence. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. When I think about that, you know, I think about walking to a crowded area. It's that way with God. Everywhere we turn, everything we bump it, he is there. He walks everywhere incognito. I love that. Everywhere, we cannot get away from him. Again, that should bring us a great deal of comfort. Without Christ, it should be really scary to us. Apart from him, that's a really scary thought. In Christ, in his righteousness, it brings great comfort. All right, the next set of verses, let's begin with uh, verse number 13. We're going to read down through verse number 18. Let me turn my page over there. Verses 13 through 18. Let's read these together out loud, if you would. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. All right, so let's look at those six verses. Highlight, underline, circle what stands out, and then we'll jump back in in about a minute. Thank you. 
from verses 13 through 18. What word or phrase stood out to you from those verses? Anybody? You knitted me together? Yeah. All of verse 16? Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. She said, uh, I like when my, when my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Knowledge and secrecy, yeah. Anybody? Say it again. Say, say it one more time. Sorry. Oh, verse 14. Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. For you are fearfully and for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Danuta. Anybody else? How precious to me are your thoughts. Yeah. When we look at these six verses, here's the here's the thousand uh, dollar word for this one. It's the word omnipotence. Omnipotence. Some of y'all saw where this is going. We have these three words: omniscience, all knowing, um, omnipresence. God is everywhere, and then thirdly, omnipotence. God is all powerful. So again, the prefix there: um, all, all encompassing, worldwide. Potence, potent, power. God has all power. And if God is sovereign, he is sovereign over all things. He's not sovereign over some things. That's not the definition of sovereignty. He is sovereign over all things. So notice here, if we begin in verse number 13, we see, uh, for you form my inward parts. This word for is kind of that, that ligament, that joining tissue between the first two stanzas and stanzas three and four. He says, based on the fact that you know all things and that you are everywhere, you are all powerful. For you form my word. This word you there in the Hebrew is actually emphatic. It's almost got um, an exclamation point after it. For you form my inward parts. And literally a lot of times when we see this word, uh, this phrase inward parts, if we see the word heart, almost always in the Old Testament, uh, the word there in Hebrew literally means, it doesn't mean um, this cardiovascular muscle that's inside of our chest right here. It often means your guts. And here the word is kidneys. So usually the same word is used uh, for the inward parts is used for hearts. In other words, you form together even my bowels, even the organs inside my body that hopefully no one's ever going to see. You still put those together. You form my inward parts, my body and my soul you made. Verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Not that, I'm, not that you are scared to make me, but I am made with reverence and awe. You fearfully made me. There's something special about me. There's something wonderful about me. Again, the same word, it is striking. The fact that you form me is striking to me. It's remarkable to me. There's an outside power that, that blows my mind. It's beyond human comprehension. That's what he says when he means wonderful. I'm wonderfully made. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you. So this would be our physical nature, the, the, the things that we can't see. So we get from the, from the kidneys, from the guts, from the bowels to, okay, my physical nature, you see this. At the moment of, con- of conception, even one strand of DNA, just one strand of your DNA at conception it contains more information than a thousand volumes worth of, worth of information. So if you take a thousand um, encyclopedias, your DNA strand, one of them has more information than all of those. If every single one of those volumes had 600 pages in it, and every single one of those 600 pages had 500 words, one single strand of DNA has more information than that. And God knows that about you. He he is not here talking about the plural, you, y'all, you guys, all of you. He's saying you, singular. Whatever your name is, he knows that about you. And not that he just knows it, he observes it. Oh, that's that's how they showed up. No, no, he formed you in that way. He knows that about you. When I was being made, my friend was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, this is the mother's womb. You, you alluded to it, Sarah. But this is when I was being formed in secret. 
This, friends, is why we are pro-life from the moment of conception. Because that child inside of that mother's womb, he knows that child that's there. And then he finishes this verse right here. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. What comes to mind when you think the depths of the earth? Say it again. Caves? <laughs> yeah. Anything biblical, Trey, that comes to I mean, this is church for, just say Jesus. Jesus, yeah, Jesus comes to mind. Good job. Good job, buddy. Not what I was going for, but um, can't say no, okay? Uh, that's never a wrong answer, right? But I, I'm, I think back to Genesis chapter two and verse number seven. Uh, it says this, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God did that with Adam, and he continues to do it with every single one of us. He knows us intimately. He knows how we are formed. He forms us in our mother's womb from the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In other words, this unformed substance um, literally there means your personality. So God decided whether or not you're going to be an introvert or an extrovert whether you're going to be a, a morning bird or a night owl. He knew what you're, if you were going to have a, a good work ethic or not a great work ethic. Work ethic. He knew what uh, your learning style was going to be, if it was going to be more tactile, if it was more verbal, if it was more um, whatever. I don't know what the other ones are because I, I don't even know what mine is. So um, he knew what your learning style was going to be. He knew if you were going to be more of a risk taker or if you were going to play it safe. And he didn't just know it, he formed you in that way. Look at the second half of verse 16. In your book were written every one of them, every one of my days, every, one, every part of my personality, every part of the way that I was designed and made physically. It was written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So before you were even a thought, he knew you. I'll tell you this, friend, whatever your origin story is, whatever your origin story is, if you think, man, my parents, I came along as a surprise at best. I came along as a surprise or I never knew my parents or I didn't have a relationship, whatever it was, whatever the origin story was for your life, can I tell you that God has a purpose and a plan for your life? So even if your parents or your grandparents or your mom or your dad or your sibling, whoever it was, even if they did not want you, you are no accident. Regardless of what your parents' plan or purpose was for your life, God has one for your life. He has a purpose and plan. Here's the second thing that I want us to see. And I realize you're like, whoa. All right, so if I break this up seven points, okay, we're gonna be here for a while. Don't worry, we're gonna hustle through these last six, all right? Here's the second thing that I want us to see is that there is something significant about you that is distinct from anyone else. If, if I had an ideal or maybe for some of y'all, if y'all were like, here's who I wish you would be, Michael. <laughs> or if my wife was like, here's an ideal version of Michael. But for me, here's the ideal version of myself is to be a is to have certain communication styles and techniques, is to have a certain amount of money, to have a certain look, to have a certain whatever it is, to live in a certain place, to be as successful as whatever it was. And I had this, this image of who this person is. And there are lots of pastors, lots of preachers, lots of guys in my position who I'm like, man, if I could just reach that point, if I had muscles like, I don't know, Craig Groeschel, if I just had the voice of Mark Dever, if I just had the intellect of Carl Truman, if I just had whatever it is, if I just had that, then I would have arrived, that I would be the ideal version of Michael Powell. But can I tell you, even if I combine all three or four of those guys, and if I became that, that would not mean that I had reached the potential that Christ had put inside of me. He has given me, Michael Powell, he's given you, he has a specific purpose and plan for your life. He has not wired me like those guys. Man, I wish he would have. You're like, yeah, if you could preach like that, that'd be awesome. I'm like, yes, amen. But he hasn't. I'm sorry. But for you, even if I attained to that, I would be missing out on something significant because that's not what God designed me to be. He didn't design me to be someone else. He designed me to be me. He designed you to be you. Look at verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Your thoughts, they are weighty, they are mighty, they are more numerous than the sand. 
I did some math um, this, this past week. And if anybody like going to the beach, anybody love the beach? I'll be at the beach next Sunday. I'll have my toes in the sand. Um, if you send me a picture of you sitting here, I'll send you a picture of me with my, with my feet right there in the Atlantic. Um, and so uh, if you, when you go to the beach this summer, look as far as you can this way, as far as the, the furthest point of the sand that you can see. If you look as far as you can this way, where the, wherever, the sun meets, wherever the sand meets the horizon. So on that beach that you're on, as far as you can see, imagine that's your life, okay? So imagine that's your life in volume. Every single second, every single second of your life, if you take a gallon of sand, that's the number of thoughts that God has about you every single second. So if, you, if that's the beginning of your life, and this is if you live to be 80, okay? This is not like 20 years old. If you live to be the average age in America, which is 80, that's the beginning of your life, that's the end of your life. Every single second is about a gallon's worth of sand. You're like, man, that's, that's a lot of thoughts that God has about me. You don't know how many grains of sand that is? He says it's more numerous than the sand. In that gallon of sand are about 600 million grains of sand. I had to count them this way. I'm just kidding. Uh, that's what Google is for. Um, that and for other sermons, but uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but in that gallon of sand, that's how many thoughts God has about you every single second of your life. 600 million. Now you're like, does that really mean, literally mean God has 600 million thoughts about me? Yeah, and even more than that. That's what the psalmist says. That's what David says. Your thoughts about me, how vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, verse 18, they are more than the sand. That's a lot of thoughts. This is God thinking about you. The third thing I want us to see is this, is that self-hate, comparison, and self-condemnation are sins against God, not primarily yourself. Because God designed you. He formed you. He fashioned you. He's the one who gave you your personality. He's the one who gave you that difficulty. He's the one that gave you um, that handicap. He's the one that created your brain that way. He's the one that gave you that skill or that talent, that ability. Man, I wish... Man, that's, that's not primarily against you. It's primarily against God. And when the internal voice of the enemy, when the internal voice of Satan is louder than that of the voice of God, you are accusing God of not being good. When, oh man, I, this is the way that I am. Man, you know, Satan, you're right. I am not worthy. I am not loved. I am not significant. I cannot do that. What you're telling God, the one who created you for that, is God, you're not good. You don't know what you didn't know what you were doing when you made me. No, no, I'm I'm less than what you say I am. That's not what the word of God says. Look at verse 18. He finishes with this: I awake and I'm still with you. We saw this a few weeks ago in the book of John. But whenever it talks about someone who is dead being asleep, that means that person was a believer. That person was in faith. And it says they were asleep. They are going, when they awake, they're going to be with Christ forever, the resurrection. When it says that someone has died, that means they are dead forever to be eternally separated from God and they're going to hell. It says here, I awake and I am still with you. He's not talking about when I wake up in the morning, I'm with you. We already covered that back in like verse 10 or I don't know, 12 or something. Here he's saying, when I awake, when I am back to life, when I am resurrected, when I come back from the dead, I am still in your presence. You are still there. When I awake, I am still with you. Here's the fourth thing, is that the power of God is even greater than death. The power of God is even greater than death. He is so committed to being with us that God will not even allow death to separate us from him. That's how much he loves us. Romans um, 8, it says this in verses 38 and 39. This was supposed to be on the screen, but I skipped over it earlier. It says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. In this life, in all of eternity, in faith, we are forever in the presence of Christ. Man, what a great promise. He knows us today. He knows us for all time. And we see this this idea, this, this fourth point, that the power of God is even greater than death. 
The reason that we can claim that and the reason that this is good news for us this morning is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When it seemed like the enemy, the power of the enemy was victorious, when Jesus Christ was dead and in the ground for a matter of days, when it seemed like Christ had been defeated, it's at that point the power of God the Father spoke to Jesus Christ and empowered him through the Holy Spirit. He got up and he came back to life and he walked on this, on this earth again. That's the same power that he's given to us. That's the same promise that we can claim that because of the resurrection of Christ, the power of death is not greater than us. All right, the last set of verses here, verses 19 through 24. Let's read these together out loud. And then we're gonna, I'll I'll go ahead and walk through these. So let's begin in verse number 19. Y'all ready? Let's read these out loud together. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. As we look at those verses right there, does anything significant stand out in those verses? Is it kind of weird, the placement of these verses? And by the way, if you um, look up this passage and look up what other guys preached on this, they often stop at verse number 18. And then they'll close their sermon with verses 23 and 24. They're like, yeah, those verses right there in the middle are kind of interesting, but that doesn't really work with the rest of the chapter. So why does David put these four verses right there, 19 through 22. Why are those verses right in there? Anybody, anything that sticks out to you? Anything significant in those verses? He uses the word hate a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Here's, here's the fifth thing I want us to see this morning is that Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh is so close to me. Fill your name in that blank. Yahweh is so close to me that when I'm attacked, he's attacked. When I'm attacked, he's attacked. If you think back to Acts chapter nine, when Saul is on the road to Damascus to uh, torture some more Christians, Jesus shows up there to him. And what does Jesus say to him? Saul, why are you killing the church? Why are you torturing believers? Why are you hating on those who follow me? No. Jesus says to, to Saul, he says, Saul, why are you killing me? Now, was Saul trying to kill Jesus? Literally, no. He was killing his church. But what Jesus was doing is saying, me and my church, we're one. If you're messing with them, you're messing with me. So here, Yahweh is so close. He's so personal that when we are attacked, he is attacked. In this context right here, this word hate means to oppose or to reject. And really what he's saying here is, you are omnipotent, you are omniscient, You're all knowing, you have all power, you are omnipresent, you are everywhere. I would pray, here's the prayer of David, that you would kill the enemy of God so that the kingdom of God can move forward. Remove the enemy, move him out of your way. I hate the fact that the kingdom of God cannot move forward. And David is saying, I'm gonna stand with you on truth. I'm going to be attacked if you're attacked because when I'm attacked, you're attacked. He's saying, me and Christ, we are one. We are pressing forward together for his kingdom. And if you look at verses 19 through 22, he talks about here how he hates the enemy of God, Satan, demons, sin, death, hell. We can just summarize those as we hate those who oppose Christ. And then in verses 23 and 24, notice he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. The reason I think he puts these verses in here and then immediately goes back into search me is because he's saying, I don't want any part of the enemy inside of my soul. 
God, search me. This is terrible. He says, search me. See if there is any inkling of wrong or evil of sinfulness at any part of who I am. I don't want to be associated with evil, with sin. I don't want to give in to the power of the enemy. So search me. I want to be opposed to what's wrong completely. Here's the sixth thing, is that we cannot know our hearts unless they are revealed to us by God. He says here, search me. It's like, whoa, whoa, I thought you just said that God knows all things. So if God is searching us, does that mean he's gonna find something that he didn't already know about? No, David is saying, search my heart so that I can know about it. God already knows. He's saying, search me, reveal that to me. This, uh, this term search, it's usually a negative context, right? If you get pulled over by the cops and they say, we wanna search your vehicle, what happens? Even if you have nothing in the car, which none of us do, right? You're still just like, ooh. You see those blue lights behind you, you get tense. Or if, you, if you're going to the airport, you go through TSA, you're just like, oh man, what did I leave in my bag? What did I, you know, did I throw that, you know, those drugs away? Whatever, I don't know, whatever it is for you. But if, they, if you go through TSA and you're like, you're fine, you're good to go. But if they say, hey, we wanna search your bag, if they pull you off to the side, what immediately happens? Your blood pressure spikes because I don't wanna be searched. There's something scary about it. But here David says, search me. I want you to know me. And he knows anyway, but he wants his heart to be revealed so that he can confess that, bring it before God. So there is nothing between him and his relationship with the Father. Here's the last thing, is that God cannot heal what we conceal. God cannot heal what we conceal. So rather than taking our sinfulness and feeling shame about it and covering it up with more shame and putting it over here in the dark, David says, bring it into the light. Man, he knows. He knows everything about you. Just confess it to him. Bring it before him. Turn your back on evil and he promises to heal. The desire of our good, gracious father is not one of guilt. It's not one of shame. His desire for us is relational beauty, it's connection. So he says, search my heart. See if there is anything in me that is hindering me from relational beauty. Many of us, uh, we would say, I know, I know for me, if you were to say, hey, uh, Michael, what are you su- uh, successful at or what are you a failure at? I would say, man, most things in my life, I feel like a failure. Anybody with me? You're like, man, if, if I had to put myself into one of these two categories, I would feel like a failure even in the areas that I would say, oh man, I'm successful at this. Many of the things that we are seeking success for, I think we could actually use the same definition of failure. Because failure is not just failing to do something. But according to this passage, failure is also succeeding at the wrong thing. Many of us pursue things, we won't be successful with our money, with our time, with our family, uh, with our 401k, with our job, with uh, our retirement, with whatever it is, with music, with arts. I wanna be successful in the most successful neighborhood, whatever it is. But can I tell you that if you are not successful for the purpose and the plans that God has for you, for the way that he has designed you, you are failing. I don't say that to say, hey, work harder at the things of Christ. What I'm saying is stop pursuing those things which are not for his kingdom. What are you pursuing? Is it for the glory of God or is it for your own glory? And if it's for your own glory, then you are saying, ah, the purposes, the plans, the will of God is not good. So I would plead with you this morning, be successful in your business. Be a successful dad, a successful mom, kid, artist, neighbor, retiree, whatever it is, be the best that you can be for the glory of God, for his name, for his kingdom. How has he designed you? What has he designed you for? That's where we need to start. He knows you. He loves you to the point of sending Jesus Christ to be conceived, to be formed in Mary's womb, to live perfectly, to die on the cross, to be sacrificed for you so that you could be fully known and fully loved. His death proves 
that you this morning, you with your name in the blank, you are valuable from the womb to the tomb. You are valuable every single day of your life. And he has laid out your days and he promises to be with you, to guide you, to comfort you, to bring conviction to you, to be your help, to be your hope. This morning as we celebrate this meal that he left us with, it's a reminder of his power, of his presence, of his death, of the life that is offered to us. It's a reminder that we live in a broken world, but he was broken for us so that we could be made whole. It's a reminder that we are sinful, but his blood covers us in his righteousness so that we can be with him. So I would plead with you this morning that we would celebrate his death and celebrate his resurrection this morning. And may our prayer be just like David's, search me. And in the midst of that, the evil, the ugly, the shadow part that is revealed to us, claim the forgiveness that is offered to us by Christ through his sacrifice. That's my prayer for us this morning. Father, I pray that you would take these words, take this passage through the power of your spirit that you would convict of sin, that you would remind us of the hope that we have for all of eternity, that we have your presence here with us. And even as we ingest this bread and this juice, may we be reminded that you are a part of us and that we are a part of you. It's in your name and by your grace that we pray, amen.